Welcome to Stories from Among the Stars. If you've been following along this season, you've likely just finished listening to Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. Today, you'll get to hear Travis and I discuss the audiobook and Travis's upcoming book, Bookshops and Bone Dust, which will be released November 7th. Hi, I'm Travis Baldry, author and narrator of Legends and Lattes. And I'm Natalie Nottis, audiobook narrator and voice of stories from Among the Stars. Thanks for joining us for this audiobook bonus conversation. Travis, you and I are both audiobook narrators. Can you tell us about how you first stepped into the booth? Well, I ended up doing it as a hobby. That was initially why I started narrating. My kids didn't need me to read stories to them anymore, or I couldn't convince them to let me do it. And uh, I started doing it on the side when I stumbled across ACX. At the time, I was still a video game developer, and it was just something I did in the evenings, but I really enjoyed it. And obviously, I really, really enjoyed it because now that's all I do. I think there's an interesting story behind like when you first wrote Legends and Lattes. Can you tell us about that and why you wrote it, how you wrote it, and what you thought was going to happen with it when you wrote it? Sure. So I wrote Legends and Lattes for National Novel Writing Month in 2021. And if anybody's listening and doesn't know what National Novel Writing Month is, uh, every year during the month of November, there's kind of a, uh, it's not exactly a contest, but it's an effort to write a novel of 50,000 words or more during the month of November. And people kind of cheer each other on and try and meet that goal. And um, this is the first year that I actually had a successful completion of that. I tried many times before very unsuccessfully. What were some of your unsuccessful, just general... Attempts? Yeah, I want to know what it was about. (laughs) They were always too ambitious. They were always too ambitious. Um, I did various fantasy attempts. I had like a sci-fi book that I did actually get to a novella length but it didn't meet the criteria of actually making a novel. But I always got stuck in the boggy middle, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was pretty sure I was a discovery writer, a a pantser, it's often called, where you just kind Mm -hmm. of start writing and it's very transcendent and cool, and then you clean up the mess later. But I just never even got into the cleaning up the mess phase. It was just a mess. So Legends and Lattes is the first book that I outlined, and another narrator friend of mine, Avon Shorkind, convinced me to do it. We had both tried to do it the year prior, and I think both of us just didn't have the time. And I said, well, if, if you do it, I'll do it. I ended up choosing something that I thought was a joke. I was like, I'm going to do something simple that I can complete. I read and narrate a lot of uh, lit RPG and progression fantasy, all like big, high-stakes action adventure stuff. But it was the middle of COVID, and what I really wanted to read <laughs> was like fantasy romance or something mm-hmm. just really pleasant that made me feel good, like a chicken soup book. And I don't get cast for many of those. Mm. So that's what I ended up writing. And I was actually, it was, it was totally a joke. I was in my Discord where I work live most of the time. And I said, you know what I really want to read is just a Hallmark movie set in a Dungeons and Dragons world. And that ended up being what I wrote. And then when it actually came time to sit down and write it, it ended up being a lot more earnest and weirdly autobiographical because I wrote a story about a character who in their 40s quits the job that she's been doing for her entire life, moves to a new city and discovers this whole group of people that she didn't know existed before that make her life, you know, infinitely more enriched. And I, a person in my 40s who made games for 20 years, 
quit, moved to another city, and became a full-time audiobook narrator, and discovered this amazing community of audiobook narrators that made me feel really good. So I didn't realize that was happening until about halfway through, though. Mm. Yeah. Um, Going back to the game writing, how do you feel that that informs your work, both writing and recording? So um, as a game developer, I was a software engineer, and I think that there's a lot of like broadly applicable skills that engineers build that are useful in most other industries. Being able to evaluate the subjective quality of something and decide what needs to be changed to improve it in like a tight iterative loop and constantly changing something every time and observing the outcome, I think is just generally really good for learning how to do anything. And there's also a lot of working for yourself kind of mindset with engineering because the deadlines are usually very, very hard, but the tasks are usually very nebulous. So it's very difficult to predict how long something is going to take. So you have to be very conscientious about how you're spending your time and staying on task and being productive even when it doesn't feel like you can be. And I find that both of those things really move over well to both narration and writing. Mm. And then flipping it around the other way, do you feel like writing has changed the way that you narrate at all? I think narration did a lot more to change the way that I wrote Mm. because of the way that you absorb text when you are translating it to audio. I don't feel like writing in itself changed much about the way that I narrate except for the fact that I noticed things I didn't notice before. When you get into like an editorial mindset, when you're combing through your own manuscript and looking for problems and turning, flipping that switch in your head where you're editing, it's very hard mm. to turn that switch back off. So you end up looking for the same sorts of things in every piece of text you read, which is both a benefit and a curse. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, writing and then narrating, the only the thing that it has changed in my brain is just realizing how much time writers spend with their books And, like, I always try to bring, like, so much love and care. But, like, even more, I'm like, oh, this is a real baby. Like, I'd be really nice to this. (laughs) It takes so much. And and you've written a book yourself. Yeah, I have. And it's not published yet. It's out on sub with my agent. But Congratulations, by the way. That's so awesome. Thank you. And I'm not even done with it. But, like, oh, my gosh, so much time has been spent with it. And I knew that authors spent a lot of time writing and revisions and stuff. But, like, it really is it's a very special baby. When I get their book and I'm sitting down to record it, I'm like, I want to treat this with a lot of care because a lot of time and love, and love went, went into, into this. It. Yeah. Yep. So you have a sequel to Legends and Lattes, Bookshops and Bone Dust, coming out on November 7th. Give us the pitch. What's it about? So it's actually a prequel. It's uh, set 20 years before uh, the book Legends and Lattes. Uh, Legends and Lattes is about an orc in her 40s who has been a mercenary for all her life, and she retires to open a coffee shop in a town that's never heard of coffee before, and she finds all these cool people, and it's very transformative for her. Bookshops and Bone Dust is set 20 years earlier, when she's still very young and super into the adventuring lifestyle. And at the start of the book, she is very kind of headstrong and is immediately wounded and sidelined in a crappy beach town while everybody else leaves without her. And so she's basically forced to slow down. She immediately runs afoul of the law and she befriends the very, very foul-mouthed owner of a failing bookshop. And the book is largely about all the little seeds that get planted early on in life that blossom later in ways that we never really expected. It's in a meta way about the fact that prequels are not irrelevant 
because all of these things that happen early in our life, all of these relationships that don't necessarily end happily or don't go the way that we expect them to, or we leave that city and move somewhere else, or we move on with our life, they're not irrelevant. They're the, the bedrock that forms the people that we eventually become. And it's also about books and how we see each other through books, the common experiences that connect us and that remind us that we're not alone and that other people are experiencing the same things that we are. And then also there's a lot of skeletons in it. Love it. Is there anyone besides Viv who people will recognize from Legends and Lodges? There is. There is. I don't know if this is spoiler territory or not, um, but during the book... Viv meets Galino, who you met briefly in Legends and Lattes. Okay. Um, and it's in part where they form their friendship. And also another character to show up that I'm not going to mention. Okay. Is there any romance for Viv in... There is. It's, there's a, she has a bit of a summer fling. It's basically Viv's first experience with romance. In a lot of ways, it clarifies for her what a relationship really is. And is, again, kind of foundational for who she eventually becomes and the relationships that she has. Mm. And so, I mean, I think there's just some default bittersweetness to that. But also, I like it because it's important to her. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to ask too much about bookshops and bone dust because it can get spoilery. But is there anything in Legends and Lattes, I feel like everyone's read it by now, like fun Easter eggs that you people picked up on or that you thought they would and they didn't or people always have lots of questions about Darius the gnome um, because there's a lot of stuff about him in there that's very very mysterious and he clearly has something going on with time and his relationship with Amity the cat and I was actually going to explore that in the second book that I didn't write people have have definitely picked up on that and there's more there and it's been my intent to do more with him mm. so bookshops and bone dust is not the book that I was going to write second Mm. In fact, it's not the book that I was going to write third or fourth. It ended up being the fifth one. Wintour acquired Legends and Lattes. They wanted a second book, and I already knew what it was going to be. It was basically going to be fantasy murder, she wrote. I was super into it. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was very excited for it. And it was basically going to be this uh, 500-year-old elf, and she she was the professor of uh, thaumic forensics at the magical college. So she's like, you know, crime scene magic. And she got passed over for the deanship to some young, underqualified douche. And she quit and became a romance novelist. And then years pass and the dean got murdered. They asked her to come back to solve his murder. And she's, she was, says, sure, but I, I really, I just want to shake the hand of whoever did it. And you were going to learn about magic and there was a lot of stuff with Durius. And you were going to learn about kind of like the criminal underbelly. And it was like the start of her investigative outfit where she became like a sleuth basically mm -hmm. and i wrote about thirty thousand words of it and i hated oh, it oh no because apparently i can't write a mystery i'm not oh my agatha God. christie dude every time i read a mystery now i'm like how did they hold all these threads i can't <laughs> i spent so much time getting people where they needed to be so that i could put the clue here so that the thing could happen that it all felt yeah. really mechanical I basically came to the conclusion that if I was going to write a mystery, it was going to have to be Scooby-Doo because I cared way more about the weirdos in the van than mm. I do about the intricate mystery. Just pull the yeah. mask off at the end. It's cool. Yeah. But I, I clearly couldn't write the book. So then I was horrified and I restarted multiple times until I eventually figured out what I needed to write. Gotcha. So maybe I will return to that. I hope to. The Scooby-Doo yeah. version. Can't wait. Are you 
writing another book now? Do you already have one? What are you working on I next? will be starting. I, I have another book due to be turned in uh, end of next summer. Uh, I haven't started it yet. I have all the pieces laying on the floor of my mental garage, basically. And um, I've mostly been trying to organize my life to better accommodate narrating and writing at the same time so that I can start mm. writing it in the new year. Yeah. Um, I don't spend a long time writing an individual book because I write every day until it's done and I write a chapter mm -hmm. a day. And so it'll take me, you know, a month and a half, two months maybe to write the book, mm -hmm. but I need to kind of be ready to go when I start. Are you going to stay in fantasy or are you looking to branch out into other genres? I like lots of genres and I am definitely going to do one more book in this world minimum. But I have other books that I'm interested in writing that sometimes are fantasy or sci-fi. I like genre fiction, but I also mm -hmm. like other things, too. And Tor has been good enough to let me kind of write what I want to write. So yeah. I'm really fortunate in that respect. One of the main things that shines through to me in Legends and Lattes is like a deep love of baked goods. Can you tell us about some of your favorite baked goods to eat? It's an inherent longing and I don't eat them enough. But I want to eat all of them. I'm a big fan of scones. That's like mm. my main thing. Like what? I know the okay. book has cinnamon rolls, but like a good, like a poppy seed scone or a cranberry scone. Oh, yeah. With the like orange. the turbinado sugar on the top. Yep. That has that. Oh, man. Mm. I love a scone. Weirdly, somebody made a recipe for the biscotti from the book. Mm -hmm. There's someone that has a website called Fantasy Cookery, and she makes recipes for fantasy books. And she like made the recipe for the biscotti, and then we made them, and they were amazing. And we ate... You're not supposed to eat all of the biscotti in one day, but that is exactly what we did. <laughs> Tastes better the first day, so you got to commit once they're, you make a batch They're so great, fresh baked. Yep, yep, yep. And you baked them yourself? Actually, my wife did it. Okay. We're, I'm bake? not much. I'm the cook, and she's the baker. Gotcha. That's really how it works out. That makes sense. All right, so I'll ask you one now. Okay. So, Natalie, you also narrate a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Is there something in general that really draws you to speculative fiction work? The biggest thing is that I get cast in them. <laughs> so I get sent them. I do enjoy recording them, though. And I think that like with any kind of entertainment, books, screens, whatever, it's fun to escape. Not that my life is horrible. My life is wonderful. But it's just fun to go somewhere completely different and magical, whether it's in space or a different world or actual magic. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. And I think that it works really well with my narration because there's a lot of big characters and really dramatic things happening. And um, it can take a lot of emotional weight and vocal dynamics to get through it. And I have fun with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So given that, when you chose to sit down to write... Did you write based on what you most enjoy narrating, or did you write based on what felt like just most relevant to you at the time? I've tried to write a couple books before, like you, and just like never quite finished them. And this mm -hmm. is the book that I felt like I had to write. So it's very personal. It's contemporary YA, which is also mm -hmm. another genre that I love narrating. And it's just kind of heavily based on my own experiences growing up. It's just very did personal. Did you find it cathartic to write? Yeah, for sure. Yeah? Yeah. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> well, if it ever gets published, we'll see. Maybe I'll just bury it under a tree. I feel like I have an in with the author and that I don't necessarily have to wait. That's true. That's Potentially. True. That's true. <laughs> I'm not going to put you on this spot on recording, though. <laughs> what's your favorite? What's your go-to coffee order? So I make almost all my coffee at home. My wife and I got one of those Terra Cafes like you have. 
When I saw yes. your video on it, in fact, I love oh it. Oh my gosh, we're Terra Cafe buddies. Yes, we're Terra Cafe buddies. So we got one of those for our like 23rd wedding anniversary um, for each other. I like a mezzo mezzo, which is a little bit of crystallized sugar in the bottom, and then an Americano, and then an espresso. So basically a double shot Americano with a little bit of steamed milk on the top. So it's a little bit sweet. It's not as milky as a latte. It's still got your two shots, and it's still got some volume. My favorite. How about you? I do really similar, actually, because I'll do an Americano and an espresso, and then I'll just Mm -hmm. pour a little, like, hazelnut creamer on top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Fist pump. Big fist bump. Do you drink cold coffee? I like do, but it's not my... F- I generally tend to like it hot, even if okay. it's hot outside. Me too. I don't want to waste all that room with ice. I could be <laughs> caffeine. It's true. It's true. What do you think is the hardest or the most surprising part of being a narrator? I think it's the heat in the summer for me. I don't think people expect it to be so hot. I think people don't realize how, like, unrelenting it is, like, turning out hours and hours of audio. It takes a tremendous amount of just, like, discipline. Like, there's no way to cram an audiobook. Like, I've thought this many times. Yeah. Like, oh, I wish I could just, like, You just can't speed it up. You can't speed it up. You can't record it faster and then slow it down. You just, you have to sit your butt or stand or whatever you're doing, but you in front of the mic for hours and hours and hours, and you can only do so much in a day, so you have to consistently... It takes a lot of discipline. It just does. Yeah, there's no shortcuts, and it's very difficult to catch up because you've only got so so much stamina in a day to lay down a vocal performance without putting yourself in the hole. So there's a lot of pre-planning, honestly, I find. And then dealing with, like, unexpected things. If you get sick as a narrator, it's, like, a big deal. If you get sick and you work on a laptop... It's not, you know, oh, no, I'm working from home. I don't feel great, no but I'll just sit here yeah. and watch Supernatural and, you know, do my work. But if you're sick as a narrator, you just can't do anything. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's tempting sometimes, like, if I have a cold and I'm feeling better to, like, get in the booth. But as soon as I hear myself, I'm like, no. And that goes back to, like, respecting how much work writers put into stuff. I'm mm-hmm. like, this is their baby. They spent a year, maybe two years writing this. I'm not going to get in here and record it yep. sounding like this, you yep. know? Joe so, walks down the yeah. stairs, and that went into the ketchup. Yeah, I mm. feel like I have to respect it enough to wait until I'm sounding like myself, so. There are those last moments where you're, like, just desperate to clear yourself out. Where's the neti pot? Oh, my God, I just have to get some hours in. And you're just trying to figure out if you can tip over the threshold where you sound properly like yourself. That's when I get on... I send some voice messages to my friends, and I'll be like, do I sound like me? Chapter 35, how does this sound? And they'll give me a thumbs up or down. (laughs) Okay, fun question. If you were going to open up a business in a fantasy world, what would the business be? I mean, I like the idea of opening a bookshop, especially if it's a literate fantasy world. That would be really helpful, you know? Yes, Not very useful in an illiterate fantasy world. But I would open a bookshop because there's no... I don't have to worry about, like, hygiene or food service or any of the things we don't talk about in fantasy books because they're very inconvenient to talk about. Mm. Who's washing the dishes in Legends and Lattes? Oh, uh, Viv and Tandry both do it. They've got a they've okay. got a they've got a bucket back there next to the barrel, and they do hand wash the dishes. But you know, we don't like to think about that too much, or yeah. where the bathrooms are. Wow, I didn't even think about that. This is a very common question also in a lot of the gamelet that I read, um, which is almost always about people getting into like immersion pods and going into the game and, you know, living out their fantasy dreams inside of a game. And people always want to know where they poop. Where are they pooping? While they're in the pod, you know, how does that functionally work? And then authors have all kinds of ways of answering that question. (laughs) 
It's an important question. It's just like my immer- I need to I need to be immersed in this book, so I have to know where everybody does their business. I'm trying to think about what business I would open. When you said um, it needs to be a literate fantasy world, I was like, oh, man, a bookshop in an illiterate fantasy world sounds great because I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. But <laughs> as long as as long as you've money. got the financial wherewithal to stay afloat. Right. You know, it's like how many pennies do you have to pinch to live in this <laughs> fantasy world? Independently wealthy, just having a bookshop for the vibes and then just sitting there and reading myself. I think independently wealthy is probably a good answer for like in any world, you know, yeah. whatever whatever world you're in. I just want to be an independently wealthy person. <laughs> Have you recorded the audiobook for Bookshops and Bone Dust already? I did ages ago and it was a ball. Uh, awesome. recording your own work I find is like the easiest recording that you can do. Yeah. That's been my experience uh, because I don't know if this is the way you feel about it, but when I am reading a book, when I'm narrating, because so much of it is predicting where an author is going to go, I find that the closer I am to being on the same wavelength as the author, the easier the book is to read. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to judge whether they're going to go left or right on a sentence, basically, uh, yeah. with, with a higher degree of accuracy. Well, When you're reading your own stuff, it's very hard to get more on the same wavelength than that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I found, and I don't, again, I don't know if this is true for you, but my internal voice, like my voice in my head has been rewired to be very accurately my voice after reading out loud for this many mm-hmm. thousands of hours. Mm-hmm. So when I'm writing, I hear everything pretty clearly the way that I would have narrated it while I'm writing it. So I yeah. feel like I've almost done a read through already before I even start. I know how everybody sounds. I know how every line is supposed to land. And you just kind of do it. It's sort of yeah. like dancing. It's really pleasant. Do you have um, a favorite character or favorite characters that you've voiced in your own books? I really like voicing Cal. He's kind of taciturn, but I think it's really fun to invest the word hmm with just the right twist for whatever situation it's used Love in. Love that. Yeah. Travis, Natalie, this is so been... much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start over. We're both on You go first. Okay, go ahead. Okay, okay. Travis, this was so fun. Thanks for chatting. It's been so great to see you again, Natalie. I have missed you from our many Zooms during COVID. It's I missed you fabulous. too. This was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been Travis Baldry and I, Natalie Nottis, discussing the Legends and Lattes audiobook. We'll now hear a special sneak peek from Travis's upcoming audiobook, Bookshops and Bone Dust. Macmillan Audio presents Bookshops and Bone Dust Written and read by Travis Baldry Prologue Eighteen, bellowed Viv, bringing her saber around in a flat curve that battered the white skull off its spine. She laughed and rammed her shoulder through its body before it could begin to fall, shattering bones in all directions. In two more steps, she'd already brought the blade back in an upswing, catching another in the ribcage. Splinters sprayed like wood chips from a felling axe. Nineteen, she grinned savagely, baring her fangs and forging ahead with massive strides. Every breath sang pure and clean in her lungs, her muscles bunched and released in perfect rhythm, Her blood roared in her veins. She was youth and strength and power, and she meant to push all three as far as they would go. 
Varine, the Pale's army of gaunt, skeletal soldiers crowded amidst the bastion oaks, nimble despite their desiccation. They battled in deathless silence, short swords and pikes snapping toward Viv, and she dodged or hacked them aside, relentless as the tide. She was far ahead of the rest of Rackham's ravens, leading the charge. Old warhorses, the lot of them, old and slow. They tried to keep the new blood in the back, but that wasn't what she was built for. Somewhere ahead, the necromancer lay in wait, and Viv meant to reach her first. When the stragglers finally caught up, they'd find her with her blade at ease and their quarry in a heap at her feet. Her count increased with every stroke as she laid about her with her saber. Still not fast enough. She yanked her maul from its loop and went to work with both hands, crushing and shearing through the skeletal ranks with hammer and sword. Their shields were bashed aside. Their ringmail tore like paper. Their skulls collapsed like winter melons. Harsh cries echoed behind her as Rackham's crew dealt with the chaff she left in her wake or the whites that tried to flank them. Someone shouted for her to slow down. She huffed a scornful laugh. And then her leg lit up with a cold fire that turned hot in half a second. She staggered and pivoted on the other foot just as a pike's rusty head withdrew from a long wound in her thigh. It darted forward again, and she stared disbelieving as it disappeared through her trousers and into the meat of her leg in a perfect parallel slice. Then the blood came, a lot of it. She roared, knocking the pike aside with her maul and following with an upward slash of her saber that ripped the white in half. Its horned helm spun skyward in an absurd twirl. Viv would have laughed if the agony hadn't overtaken her when her weight shifted from the swing. Her wounded leg collapsed under her like a cornstalk. Suddenly, she was on her side in the moss and muck, bleeding everywhere. Another skeletal revenant loomed above her, curls of blue light flickering in its empty sockets. On its forehead, Varine's symbol burned bright, a diamond with branches like horns. It hauled a rusty tower shield into the air, preparing to bring the edge down in a crushing blow. The only sounds were the creaking of its sinew and Viv's own ragged breaths. She just caught the edge of the shield with her maul, knocking it to the side, but she lost her grip on her weapon. Tears of pain blurred her vision. Viv hadn't managed to disarm the thing, though. Implacable, the revenant raised the slab of metal once more. This time, the angle was all wrong to shift the saber between her and the falling edge. In shocked disbelief, she could only watch as the steel dropped toward her neck. A ragged cry, but not her own. Rackham barreled into the creature with his shoulder. As the white staggered back, the dwarf obliterated the thing with a single swing of his flanged mace. He glanced down at her, and the disappointed grimace on his lips made her nausea double. Hell's damned fool. Cop a handle that. Stay put and try not to die if you can. Then he was gone, and Viv was breathless with shock as Rackham's ravens charged past in a line of blades and bows and arcane fire that leveled the foe before them. They disappeared into the mist, and she was alone, staring in disbelief as her life pumped out of her leg. Still with us, eh? Viv groggily regained consciousness. She felt like she was going to be sick. Maybe she already had been. The first things she saw were Rackham's flinty eyes, glittering above the braids of his muddy salt-and-pepper beard. Viv shook her head and looked around. The edges of her vision seemed smeared with grease. Somehow she'd braced her back against one of the oaks. She'd apparently also had the presence of mind to tear off the bottom of her shirt and bind her wound around a handful of moss. 
The cloth was soaked through, and the earth underneath was a churn of mud and blood. At the sight of it, she began to drift, and Rackham brought her back with a surprisingly gentle slap to the cheek. He sighed and shook his head. The battle was done. If his presence hadn't been enough to tell her, then the unhurried movement of the warriors behind him would have. I figured it when you signed on. Hoped I'd be wrong, but nah, I knew this was the way it would go. Younger is always dumber, and wising up takes blood and time. He looked away, as though into some other possible future, then back at her. Every new prospect, I give them even odds. I look at the hands, the arms. No scars, then it's even odds that the first one they get kills them. With one gloved hand, he patted her massive forearm. Corded with muscle, but the skin unblemished. Viv stared past it to the wreck of her leg. Rackham stood, and she still didn't have to look up far to meet his eyes. Is this the one that kills you, then? Viv swallowed down her nausea and narrowed her eyes, feeling stupid. Feeling stupid made her feel resentful, and resentment was only a half-step from angry. No, she said through clenched teeth. He chuckled. Don't guess it will at that, but you're done for now. She blinked. Did we get her? We didn't. Wasn't even here near as we can tell. Only a little trouble she stirred up just for us. We're heading north. We'll find her. Viv struggled to push herself to standing against the trunk with her left leg. The other felt too big by half, and every pump of her heart was a dark drumbeat all through it. When do we leave? We? Like I said, you're done for now. They tell me it's only a few miles to some sea town. I'll send you that way. You'll heal up, and we'll pass through when we're done. If you're still around and able when we roll through, we'll take you back on. Probably a few weeks. If you're gone when we show... He shrugged. No shame in calling this the end of it. But it's done, kid. You survived a stupid mistake today. If you want to make another so soon after, well... His gaze was hard. Want me to tell you the odds I give on that? But Viv wasn't a stupid orc, so she shut the hells up. One. Viv lay on the floor of the tiny room. Well, almost on the floor. The place hadn't been built with orcs in mind, and the bed was too short by at least two feet. Someone had wrestled the straw tick mattress onto the floor, and though her legs still went off the end, they'd positioned her pack so her foot was propped, keeping the wounded leg elevated. It hurt like all eight hells. She'd caught a fever while bouncing along in the litter behind a pack mule, coughing through all the dust it could raise, which was a lot. Viv might have been bedbound for two days, in and out of consciousness, a muddle of circular dreams and throbbing agony. The surgeon had come and gone multiple times, or maybe he hadn't and she'd just been hallucinating it over and over. She half remembered the man's face, tangled up in a shame she couldn't identify. Now her head was clear which mostly meant she could also feel everything with complete clarity. It was a debatable improvement. What's more, she was absolutely ravenous. Staring around the room, the place was mostly barren. A crude bed frame and a tiny table with a lantern and a basin on it. Gray, raw wood for walls, a small slatted window. She smelled the sea and dry beach grass and fish. An old sea chest sat opposite, 
Her saber leaned against it alongside a crude wooden crutch. Her mole was missing. There wasn't much else worth considering. The building was absolutely quiet. The only sounds came from outside, the hissing of grass, the remote grumble of waves, and the occasional call of a seabird. Viv had been lucid for less than a single hour, and she thought the view might drive her insane if she had to endure another. Her leg was cleanly wrapped, at least, splinted so the knee wouldn't bend. Her trouser leg had been cut away. The bandages showed some discoloration where she'd oozed through, but it was a big step up from moss and a dirty wool shirt. Well, she said, shit. She made it up by degrees, hauling her butt onto the bed frame and sucking air through her teeth as she swung her damaged leg around. Her left boot fit, but the right foot was so swollen it would have to stay bare. Tottering to her feet, she made it to the basin of tepid water, where she scrubbed herself as best she could with the rag she found there. Feeling less foul, she limped toward the door, but each thud of her heel against the floor pulsed black at the edges of her vision. Gritting her teeth, she changed direction and grudgingly seized the crutch. It galled her to admit how much better that was. While she was there, she belted on her saber out of habit. Unfortunately, she discovered that the room was at the top of a flight of narrow stairs. She fumbled down them, catching herself every other step with the crutch. The saber did nothing to make things easier. With every impact, she found a new, more colorful epithet for Rackham. Not that it was his fault, of course. Still, it was a lot more satisfying to curse someone by name, even if that name should have been her own. She could smell the ghost of bacon as she descended, which was plenty of incentive to carry on. The stairs opened into a long, rough-timbered dining area in an inn or tavern or whatever they called it around here. A big stone hearth crouched cold along one wall, yawning like a disappointed mouth. An iron chandelier hung askew, entombed in candle wax. Glass floats and storm lanterns were strung or nailed up in the rafters, alongside netting and weathered oars with names carved into them. The handful of scarred tables were unoccupied. A long bar ran along the back wall, and the tavern keep leaned against it, idly cleaning a copper mug. He looked as bored as the place warranted. The tall sea-faced chin was grizzled gray. His nose was a hatchet, his hair hung kelp-thick past sharp ears, and his forearms writhed with tattoos. Morning, miss, he rumbled. Breakfast? Viv couldn't remember anyone ever calling her miss. His gaze sketched over, brows raising as he spied the saber, then returned to the mug he was polishing. Bacon? asked Viv. He nodded. Eggs, too. Potatoes. Her stomach grumbled aggressively. Yeah. Five bits ought to do it. She patted at her belt for her wallet, looked toward the stairs, then swore. I'll get it next time. Worst case, I'd climb those stairs myself. The man smiled wryly. Don't think you could outrun me, could you? You'd better fall onto one of those stools while you still can. Viv was so used to her very existence being an obvious threat that it was honestly startling to hear a casual joke at her expense, even such a mild one. She supposed clunking around on one leg tended to dull one's fearsomeness. As she accomplished the suggested maneuver, he disappeared into the back. Viv dragged another stool close enough to prop her bare foot on one of its low supports. Drumming her fingers on the counter, she tried to distract herself by studying the interior further 
but there really wasn't much else worth marking. The sounds and smells from the back were all her mind could dwell on. When the tavern keep brought out a skillet and set it on the counter along with a fork and a napkin, she almost seized the hot handle with her bare hand in her hurry to drag it closer. The hash of potatoes, crispy, fatty pork, and two runny eggs were still sizzling and popping. She almost burst into joyful tears. Viv caught him watching her devour the food from the other end of the bar and tried to slow down, but the potatoes were salty and rich with the egg, and it was hard not to shovel it in without pausing. The noises she made as she ate were not polite, but they were definitely sincere. Feel better? The Cifei asked as he slid the empty pan off the bar top. Gods, yes. And thanks. Uh, I'm Viv. That wry grin again. Heard when you came in. We met, actually, but I'm not surprised you don't remember. Not with all the commotion. She didn't remember the commotion, but his amused tone made her wonder. So, did the ravens pay up my stay? Hope to see Rackham himself, said the barkeep. Still, the fellow he sent to put you up was practically a gentleman. Paid four days. Said you'd be able to foot it past that. I'm brand. He held out a hand, and she shook it. They both had hard grips. Back to your ease, then, he asked. Hells no, I'd go crazy. Um, where exactly am I? His wry grin went all the way to amused. Let me be the first to welcome you to Merc, jewel of the western coast, a very small part of the western coast. And this here is the perch, my place. Seems awfully quiet around here. She'd almost said depressingly quiet. We have our loud moments when the boats are in, but if you're looking to rest and recover, most days you're not going to be bothered by the noise. She nodded and hopped onto her good foot, easing the crutch back under her. Well, thanks again. Guess I'll be seeing a lot of you. With hot food in her belly, Viv felt more herself. The thought of hobbling her way around a little of the town was a lot more attractive than it had been a few minutes ago. She wrapped a knuckle on the counter. Think I'll take in the sights. See you in ten minutes, then, said Brand. Viv laughed, but she had to force it. Two. As Viv lurched off the porch, grabbing one of the newel posts for balance, she glanced back. A battered sign hung under the shingled awning, bearing an indifferently carved fish with the perch chiseled above it and stained dark. A light sea breeze teased her curls into her face, and she gazed out over what she could see of murk. The ocean was visible for three-quarters of the horizon until it was obscured by a tall, chalky bluff to the north. She could discern the barest sketch of some small structures and fences, but not enough to identify their purpose. Dunes swelled back from the shore in flattening waves, crested by shaggy fringes of beach grass. An old stone fortress wall surrounded most of Merc proper, marching uphill with the town tucked inside. The perch wasn't within its protective encirclement, but on a sandy upslope beside the southern road, affording a view over the ramparts. Outside the walls and nearer to the perch, long ranks of narrow buildings curved in dwindling arcs toward the beach. Their clabbered sides were bleached pearly gray by sun and salt mist, burnished silver in the late morning light. Uneven boardwalks stitched them together, and old sparsely cobbled roads wound between, sifted over with sand in places. Four long piers extended out into the sea, jumbled with crates and rigging. Fishing boats nibbled against the pilings like minnows after bread, 
while bigger ships plied the waters beyond. A few tiny figures moved on the piers, and their faint calls rebounded across the water. The whole city seemed half asleep. She doubted it ever woke up. A sudden, powerful sense of being left behind swamped Viv. Rackham had dumped her in these misbegotten borderlands, and a wild certainty crawled up from her gut that he never planned to come back this way. It was all a convenient excuse to be rid of a troublesome kid. She gritted her teeth and wrestled that feeling back down into the dark. As Viv limped out of the shade, the full weight of the sun fell upon her. Not known yet, but getting close. She closed her eyes and soaked it in for a moment, trying to enjoy the heat on her skin. Drawing in a huge breath of the sea air, she let it out slow. Well, she said to herself, let's get this over with. Navigating the cobbles with the crutch was tricky, but she was glad they were there because sand alone would have been far worse. Her progress was glacial, but methodical, and her underarm was already chafing at the unfamiliar crutch. She'd have to wrap it in something until she could get rid of the damned thing entirely. The slope was downward, but slight, which was a blessing. Gulls startled from the dunes that climbed on either side of the road. For a wonder, the first person Viv saw was another orc. He tromped stolidly toward her, dragging a wagon behind him with the traces tucked under his arms. His chest and head were bare, and his shoulders crisscrossed with old scars. Bundles of driftwood and split kindling were stacked in the wagon. Morning, she said, offering a joking salute with her unoccupied hand. He nodded as he passed, his eyes flicking to her sword, and she stopped to watch him go. He didn't look back, which vexed her for some reason. The first buildings she reached were a series of shops that led down to the beach, where a network of wooden causeways made the sand more navigable. Viv maneuvered up onto the boardwalk connecting the shop fronts. Every impact of her crutch on the salt-blasted wood was like a hoofbeat. Most of the shops were tall and narrow, and seemed to be leaning away from the breeze off the ocean. Up close, the clabbered and shingles were shaggy with splinters. The first few businesses were closed, permanently, judging by the cracked glass with tarps or paper pinned inside, then a bookshop of some sort. Through a pair of narrow front windows, she spied chaotic piles of books, charts, and miscellaneous junk. She could almost see the smell of mildew. The door had once been red, but was now streaked with nothing but the memory of a color. A little sign to the left read, Thistlebur Booksellers. Viv shook her head and hobbled on. A sailmender's, then a junk shop crammed with shells, sand dollars, glass floats, and nautical flotsam and jetsam. Viv couldn't imagine why anyone would want any of it. She caught a whiff of baking on the breeze, cutting through the pungent odors of brine and seaweed. Not surprisingly, she was already hungry again. The effort of getting around and the demands of a healing body notwithstanding, Viv burned hot, and her late breakfast was nearly consumed in the furnace of her belly. At the very end of this strip of shops was the first real sign of life she'd seen, unless you counted the stone-faced orc hauling firewood, which she didn't. This place was at least double the width of the others, with two chimneys puffing away and folks actually coming and going. Seasong Bakery was stenciled on the glass, and the letters looked tidy and freshly painted. Not that you needed anything more than your nose to figure out what the shop was about. Woven baskets crammed with big round loaves, buns, and biscuits showed through the window. A bell over the door tinkled as a dwarf with a sailor's swagger emerged, cramming the last of something into his mouth. 
Viv peered inside for a minute, cursing herself again for leaving her wallet in her room. The gigantic, flaky biscuits promised to exceed the lofty expectations the sense had already set. She wiped her lips with the back of her forearm and turned reluctantly away. Pa had always told her that hunger could be cured with sweat one way or the other. She began lurching her way determinedly across the sand-washed road. Most of the buildings on the other side seemed to be residences, or maybe lodgings for vacationers. Nobody seemed to be about, though. A long hitching post ran along the road, and that would do well enough for what she wanted. She'd spent several days on her back, and her body made sure she felt it. Not that she'd be running foot races any time soon, but you could hardly expect to stay alive slinging steel if you didn't keep your own edges sharp. Leaning her crutch and saber against one end, she gingerly swung herself under the main beam, gripping it overhand. She stretched her legs out into the street, wincing as pain spiked along her right thigh. She lowered herself until her elbows nearly locked. Then she pulled herself up, over and over, warmth building in her back, chest, and upper arms. The pain in her leg drifted to the aft of her mind. When her biceps quivered with the strain and sweat traced her temples, she lowered herself onto her rear, tucking in the heel of her left leg and letting herself breathe heavy and even. The orc with the wagon of firewood was staring at her, stopped on his way back downhill. His cart was a lot emptier now. A variety of worn tools dangled from hooks along its slatted sides. A maul, a sledge, an axe, a saw. Viv narrowed her eyes at him. What are you looking at? He shrugged, and when he responded, his voice was deep but surprisingly mellow. Back at it awful soon. Did I already meet you when I got here too? He shrugged again. Not a lot going on most days. Hard not to notice when something exciting happens. It was pretty exciting. The shadow of a grin. You almost strangled Highlark. Highlark? The surgeon. Oh, she replied with a wince. Well, that wasn't ideal. Pits, he said, indicating himself. Then he ducked his head, hitched the traces higher, and tugged the wagon into motion. He didn't wait for her to offer her own name. She found that vaguely annoying. Viv, she hollered after him. He just nodded without looking back. Eight hells, said Viv. Great town, I can see why everybody stays. She struggled to her feet. Gathering her crutch and saber, she went to the end of the boardwalk, retreating out of sight into a valley between two dunes. She couldn't see the water, the wind was cut off completely, and the stillness itched at her so much that she tossed the crutch to the sand and limped to the crest of the beechwood dune, hissing in pain the whole way. The breeze up there was sweeter, and she gave her breath a minute to even out before unsheathing the saber. Viv tried to execute a couple of sword forms, keeping her weight mostly to her undamaged leg. She'd hoped to at least manage a few sets of transitions from high to low to faint, focusing on precision and upper body work, but it was a lost cause. Her leading leg shifted suddenly, and when she rocked back, the weight of the blade forced her onto the weak heel, and then she was tumbling over in a plume of sand and profanity. Five minutes after her embarrassing flail down the dune, she stumbled back onto the main thoroughfare. Angry, thwarted, and keenly aware of the mix of sand and sweat up inside her shirt, she started the grueling trek up the hill toward the perch. The gentle slope was more of a trial than it had any right to be, and all she had to look forward to at the end was an empty inn, an empty room, and a set of very narrow stairs. She should have been shoulder to shoulder with the ravens, 
She should have been hacking her way closer to Varine. She should have been anywhere but here. With most of her attention fixed on the sand-covered cobbles and where she'd next place the crutch, she was startled when a shadow stepped into view. Glancing up, she found herself staring into the slitted serpent's eyes of a tapenti. The woman wasn't as tall as Viv, few people were, but situated upslope, Viv had to look up at her. Or maybe it just felt that way. She was powerfully built, the delicate patterns of her hide sculpted over muscular shoulders and legs. Her scaly hood flared along her temples and neck, salmon where the light glowed through it, and the long, rattle-like braids of her hair slithered dryly in the breeze. The lantern of a gate warden gleamed where it hung at her waist opposite a long sword, and she wore a badge on her blue tunic. The woman cocked her head in a way Viv couldn't interpret as anything but disdainful. A stunning display of martial prowess. Her eyes darted beyond Viv to the crest of the dune and the sight of her aborted blade practice. Viv's skin crawled in a hot flush, the kind that could tip from embarrassment into rage with no more than a feather's weight. She wasn't fool enough to let it happen, not with the local law, but she didn't have to be polite either. Guess there's not much else to look at, huh? The Tepenti smiled thinly, and her eyes narrowed. It's a sight I'd rather not see around my city. I like it quiet, and little girls holding swords around promise to be noisy. I suggest you keep your steel sheathed, or better yet, back in your room. No reason you shouldn't stay there, too, in my estimation. Viv sputtered. Little girl! The gate warden rode over a roughshod, her voice a relentless hiss. When they dragged you in, I took one look at you and knew I'd need to watch you. Hylark certainly won't forget your arrival any time soon. If you cause the slightest trouble here, I won't hesitate to toss you in a cell to ride out your convalescence until your friends show up to take you off my hands. Viv could only stare in mute fury. Her hand twitched toward her saber's hilt, but she mastered the impulse even as she saw the Tepenti's eyes follow the motion with grim amusement. Good day. The woman tilted her head mockingly toward the inn. And be careful on your way up the hill. A bad fall might extend your stay, and neither of us would want that, would we? Then she was gone, and Viv could only stare up the street toward the perch and fervently long for something to stab. If Rackham didn't come back soon, she'd have to leave and find him herself before she did something she might really regret. Thank you for listening to this special sneak peek of Bookshops and Bone Dust by Travis Baldry. You can pre-order the audiobook on sale November 7th, wherever books or audiobooks are sold. And don't forget to follow Stories from Among the Stars on your preferred podcast app to stay updated about new seasons. Thanks for listening. <laughs>